It's taken so much courage and realization that if I don't love what I'm doing, then it's not going to fulfill me. So I realized that music fulfills me above all else. So yeah, the biggest challenges have been just confronting the difficulties of leaving comfort in, in going off the deep end and trailblazing, really. Welcome to Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians. I'm your host, Jeff Dunn. Today, I'm joined at the IML by Adam W. Sadbury, a 2018 graduate of Eastman. Named one of Washington Post's 23 of 23, Adam is a flutist and educator paving a distinctive career with his citizenry, creativity, and vibrancy, both on and off stage. Adam, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Jeff. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Well, we know that you have an exciting week here at Eastman, but I'd love to back up and learn a little bit more about your story at the time that you graduated from Eastman. Sure. So I graduated, as you said, in 2018 in the spring. And from there, I began a career in orchestral playing. It was what I always wanted to do. So I was very excited to just kind of jump right into the mix. I started off playing as a fellow with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. It was a two-year contract, which I fulfilled one year of. And within that, I played with the orchestra for about 18 weeks of the season, took lessons, did mock auditions. And I did my best to go from feeling like a fellow to a full-time member of the orchestra. So I played the flute more than I ever had in my entire life, to say the least then. And from there, I was very fortunate to win a position as the acting principal flutist in the Memphis Symphony Orchestra. And I played in that job for three years and finished last year in 2021 in the spring. And I finished because I decided that I was going to make a career transition away from orchestral playing. I decided and realized that as much as I loved playing an orchestra, it wasn't fulfilling all of my life desires and my heart was telling me that I needed to find something else. So I was very, very fortunate to receive an offer to be a sabbatical replacement teaching flute at the University of Minnesota. And that was my cue. I was like, all right, I'm going to leave Memphis. I'm going to head off to Minneapolis, St. Paul. I now live in St. Paul. And I was positioning myself to teach in that position and to begin Alexander Technique teacher training. So I'm now in my second year of that. And I'm using these new skills between university teaching and Alexander Technique and music to build a career as a flutist and wholeness educator. Along with the orchestral work and the things I just mentioned, I also was very fortunate to join the roster for Concert Artist Guild after winning their international competition back in 2021. So now I'm in my third year um, with them, and I'm touring all over the country and a little bit internationally, playing concerts and teaching and doing residencies like I'm doing here and feeling spoiled as heck <laughs> having cool stuff like this. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a matter of uh, deciding what the next step is and making some workshops and coaching ideas come to fruition. So I, I want to take a step back a little bit because you made that comment of, okay, I was really on that path thinking about being an orchestral musician. I assume, uh, you know, as an undergraduate student, you were probably playing a lot, thinking about auditions, yep. doing some, all working on your excerpts, oh, yeah. festivals maybe in the summer, all that stuff, right? And you did it. You were a, an orchestra member. Yeah, it happened. <laughs> and, and then you decided to leave. It was absolutely my choice. I'm sure we have plenty of listeners think that's crazy. Like this, he, he fulfilled his mission, right? The thing he wanted to do, he made it happen and he chose to leave. 
Can you just explore that a little bit more about those values? That's a conversation that we often have with our students here at Eastman and try to get them to think about. What wasn't being fulfilled for you? So I've had so many conversations about orchestras and the deep feelings that I have for them, both good and bad, I will say. Well, although I will say all feelings are valid, (laughs) whether they feel good or not. And orchestra, I realized, made me feel a little bit smaller than I wanted to be. Um, Looking back at how orchestras started and how they functioned in societies and orchestra musicians especially, you know, the men put on penguin suits, women put on their ball gown dresses or really nice attire, and we functioned as almost musical servants within ensembles. And it is really, really fun to make music, but I reached the point when I realized that I want to decide how I share my music and make it as compassionate and engaging and as true to everything that I care so much about these days. And one of my greatest values now is being courageous, Uh, not just to value what I care about, but to care more about everything else around me and to contextualize my existence. So it was going to be really difficult for me to do that contextual work in the job, especially considering that I was in Memphis where my late grandfather, L. Alex Wilson, was a journalist and editor during the civil rights movement. He covered Emmett Till, Little Rock Nine, Montgomery Bus Boycott. And upon realizing that he was there during the civil rights movement and I was there during 2020, the modern civil rights movement, I had to find a way to honor not just his legacy, but you know, the world's potential a little bit more. So it sounds kind of grandiose, but it's really just me deciding that I wanted to expand more and find a better way to be myself. Yeah, it sounds like there was a lot of autonomy and creativity that you wanted to bring to the table that maybe just wasn't possible through the medium you were working in before. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, orchestras are full of opportunities for personal growth, but it's difficult to express that fully when you are restricted by a conductor who is going to be in charge whether you want them to be or not. (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure. I want to also talk, I think it was just um, in this past year, you were part of a panel for the League of American Orchestra, is that correct? Would you mind sharing a little bit about what that conversation was like or some of the things that you, the panel was talking about, because if I remember correctly, it focused kind of in that space of the modern orchestra and its programming and audiences and all of those kinds of concepts. Right. The panel discussion was on demographics and orchestras, and it was over, it was a study that was done over the last 10 years or so. And the hope was that all of the DEI work that's been done, especially in recent years, would have had would have made enough difference to turn over some of the lack of change that we've seen. The results of the study showed that we have made some marginal changes, largely with getting more um, more people of color into conducting positions and with getting more. Um, often mixed race people into higher leadership positions, but just about everything else is about the same, if not actually worse in some scenarios. So my contributions were discussing how we can make those changes genuinely from the ground up. And I talked about how orchestras need to address their institutional trauma. And there are many, many aspects of that, but a few of the ones that I highlighted were the fact that um, it's you're not exactly in a healthy playing environment if you get laughed at when you make mistakes. You're not exactly in a healthy learning or performance environment if there are musicians who are trying to usurp the power of the conductors. If you often show up to work and are only sharing a small percentage of yourself and feel ostracized or attacked if you want to do more, you know? Um, 
it's it can be a limiting space. It can also be a healing space, but it's often not given the best platform for that. So all of that talk was amongst several other people in the musical industry, whether they were conductors or people who lead youth orchestras or board members. And all of us were chiming in about pipeline conversations of how do we help our young musicians find the hope and healing that we wish we could see in it? And how do we, you know, start with the top even? How, how do we help executives create a vision that's productive for everybody involved and not, you know, just paychecks potentially? Yeah. And when you cite some of these anecdotes and things that highlight that institutional trauma, as you say, um, does that come from the experience that you and your peers have had in the orchestras? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is this not could not come from me any more personally. Uh, so, yeah, I am seeking still a little bit of healing from my experience in orchestras. But um, as a whole, the goal is to my goal now is to create spaces where people can not just heal from orchestra trauma and you know maybe even classical music world trauma but just trauma and problems in general and, yeah. and really learn to thrive <laughs> it seems like perhaps some of the goal needs to be not, not not just healing from trauma but preventing it from happening in the first place yeah. right <laughs> yeah. yeah um and it and it sounds like some of the changes you've been doing over the last couple of years specifically are focusing on doing just this work yes what were some of the recommendations that you shared or, or would potentially share to solve some of those issues one conversation was just inviting everyone to spend more time reflecting on what's genuinely happening and being honest with themselves if they're happy with how other people are receiving their decision-making. And when I say other people, I mean, um, I'm talking about executives to musicians in general. I discussed the concept of having journaling sessions. I discussed the concept of um, there being like open forum, you know, almost free for all if need be, just everyone letting it all out about what they what they felt good about and what they've been pissed off about and just actually saying everything um, because we're often being too political and not allowing change to happen by keeping doors closed. So, you know, it's we got to air out the laundry at some point. I suspect on some level, though, you've maybe encountered musicians that you work with, even in the orchestra, that maybe can't fully embrace that these problems exist or that they are problems or would maybe even say, well, yeah, Adam played a wrong note in his solo. Of course I'm going to laugh or, or something. Right? <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you approach the conversation with those people that are a little bit dug in too much to feel willing to have those conversations? You know, it's, it's not so much that I felt direct pushback, but I've definitely experienced a lot of extreme discomfort around you know, these conversations. You know, like if, if someone, if I do bring these up with someone who doesn't quite align with me, but sees the validity behind them, they'll try to find a way to maybe agree with a point, but also push back in others and say, well, things have always been a little bit odd and weird. So why do we need to change them now? To which I respond, I mean, are you okay with continuing these hurtful patterns like do you want this for your you know kids if they were to ever do something like this so yeah it's my perspective in general is to continue to stick with it because this is something that I value this is something that so many people value which is why um, a lot of DEI of work has been happening of course but beyond that genuine deep work that goes past these labels and taps into the humanity of it all because it's there's a major disconnect often in a lot of institutions Tell us a little bit more about 
really making that change and making the decision? I mean, you, you mentioned you had this great opportunity to be a sabbatic replacement that maybe opened some new doors. Were there moments where you knew that, okay, yeah, I had an experience perhaps at a rehearsal or concert or as you're in your work in the orchestra that made you say, yeah, I've, I've really got to make a change? You know, the, the time that I really realized that I needed to make the change was something that most people would realize or would maybe use as a means to stay in orchestra. And that was whenever I almost won the principal flu job in the St. Louis Symphony a little over a year ago. After the audition, I received comments from the panel that I did not ask for specifically. They were just given to me very generously, which is one of the kindest gestures that I've ever received. And one of the comments I got is a piece of information that changed my life forever and what I used to change my my career in orchestra. And a person said, yeah, you sound beautiful. You moved the whole panel. It just sounds like you need to be yourself. Mic drop, <laughs> you know? And in that moment, I thought, wait, but I have been trying to be myself this whole time. So are you saying that I've been being myself wrong or uh, what is that? And, you know, I spent a day thinking about it and, I was walking in Memphis across what we call the Big Crossing Bridge, which goes over the Mississippi River, when I had the realization that I'd been a people pleaser, not just in music, but in almost every aspect of my life. And when I had that thought, like, I just, like, bust open like a dam. Like, I just, I was crying major cathartic tears. It was a literal epiphany and, I, like, a little bit of an enlightenment because I realized how much choice and autonomy I can have in my life. And I realized as long as I was going to stay in orchestra, I was going to restrict parts of myself from growing. Some people could do it all if they wanted, but I realized for myself that I needed to find a new outlet. So that was the catalyst that eventually led to me definitely agreeing to take the sabbatical gig and to start studying Alexander Technique, which is all about learning to decompress our our bodies and our minds to allow ourselves to be freer and more able to react to the worlds around us so I was fortunate to learn about Alexander Technique like back in high school but I realized this is something that will definitely propel my mission majorly so yeah it took orchestra to make me get out of orchestra <laughs> what has changed for you now musically now that you have a little more freedom especially with Alexander Technique have you noticed a major change in your playing because of that tremendously my sound has opened up in ways that I didn't know it could. My technique is so much freer and lighter and effortless. And I think above all else, I can just express a little bit more generously and freely without thinking about it. Because as a whole, as people, we hold everything we do in our lives in our bodies. So now that I'm learning the tools to constantly hit the reset button a little bit and to learn how to hit that reset button a little bit harder each time, I can alleviate myself of pressures that have plagued me even since I was a kid and just, just be happier and, and freer and more receptive to what's happening. And yeah, I'm so grateful for what's happened with my flute playing and of course everything else. But uh, yeah, it's been a tremendous change and it's really only just starting. We're going to take a short break and we come back. Let's talk to Adam about what's coming next. Do you have an idea to impact our musical world? The Paul R. Judy Center for Innovation and Research Grant 
recognizes that the music profession must engage in systemic and transformational change in pursuit of a more just and equitable arts ecosystem. Make a difference and apply on the IML website today. Adam, tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you've been working on over the last couple of years now that you have a little bit more creative freedom. Sure. So my first big project was figuring out how to incorporate the legacy of L. Alex Wilson, like my great my late grandfather, like I mentioned earlier, into my musical practice. So I created this concert experience called Musical Journalism, Continuing a Legacy Through the Flute. And I took my late grandfather's writings in the Tri-State Defender and a video that I created audio for and another cousin made the visuals for and took music by black composers that reflected a lot of my grandfather's work and just put them all together into this lecture recital experience that I've been able to share all around the country in a few different forms. Um, And the coolest time that I got to share it was at Merkin Hall in New York City back in March, which was the most the most powerful moment of my entire life because um you know that's a, a really big stage and i was there with so many loved ones and uh, the feeling of sharing that in a place where i could also like feel my grandfather's presence was beyond so um that's my first big project the second one is one that i'm currently working on and have been since the beginning of 2023 and that's a workshop entitled feeling it Tools to help musicians expand their humanity. (laughs) And um, it is a one-day workshop for musicians, young musicians aged 18 through 27, in this current form at least. And it has several sessions that include things like breathing, receiving, giving, and communing. And the purpose of all of those components is to bring light to how much more easily we can be ourselves and in our music and to tie all of these ideas together with improv with journaling practices with opening with open conversations and to in general just kind of expose how easy it can be to exist because i have made things really hard for myself at times and i don't want other people to experience that and um the workshop targets people um who are black latin a pacific islander queer neurodivergent and is meant to provide resources that will help really, at the end of the day, change individuals that will hopefully be able to change their communities and maybe even societies at the end of the day. So um, I'm currently crowdfunding for it and I have uh, raised a little over $5,000 so far. I started about two weeks ago. So it's going to be up and running before long and I'm very excited to see where it goes. And where's that taking place? There will be in-person sessions in St. Paul and Minneapolis, but I also plan on launching an online version. And, you know, it's still very early on, but it will hopefully be, you know, one day in schools and colleges, you know, maybe even Eastman if they're interested. (laughs) And for listeners who might be interested in this, how can they find out more and stay in touch with you about these, uh, these endeavors? Instagram. My handle is Adam Happyberry, which is a great joke uh, because you heard my last name earlier. And I also have a website, adamsadbury.com, where I will start posting more information about this workshop. Yeah. Is this uh, something that you're doing entirely alone? Or do you have collaborators on this as well? I will have a couple helpers really for the day of, I would say, but almost everything else is on my own. Uh, so I will find a way to not do that eventually because it's going to be uh, so much. But uh, yes, this is largely a, a, my own heart project. 
that must be a very big difference in the way that you, you know, I guess have your working life now. And now you're working independently alone, right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, man. I mean, it's definitely isolating. I've, I've had to get really, really clear about my sense of community and connection with other people. And if I'm working on things for too long, which is a bad habit of mine, workaholism is a curse, uh, I... I don't allow myself to work after like 9 or 10 p.m. at this point, which is already too late. But, you know, I, I make myself go hang out with friends and enjoy it. Just learning to reshape my life because otherwise I become the work and I want to make sure that I'm also just Adam, period. Uh, I lost a little bit of that just in the last year with all of these major transitions that I've been making. So, uh, yeah, collaboration is so essential and community is one of the things that makes life so worthwhile. So... The workshop's goal is to help people create more community, but I also need to make sure that I do that for myself so I can uh, honor it at its core. So I'm getting there. What are some challenges that you faced in that transition and, and doing some of this now independent work? Especially, I'm sure uh, plenty of listeners are thinking, wow, what a big leap of faith. You had a job, a job, job. You had health insurance, you had a salary, right? Yeah. And then you said, you know what? I'm going to put all that aside. I'll be self-employed. I'm going to do my own thing. Mm -hmm. What have yeah. you learned? It's taken so much courage and realization that if I don't love what I'm doing, then it's not going to fulfill me. So I realized that music fulfills me above all else. So since I transitioned away from orchestra and I'm not spending as much time making music with other people, I have to be really deliberate about the way that I practice. I also have to make sure that all of the work that I'm doing now is coming directly from my heart and not from my brain, which is saying, you need to make money right now. <laughs> uh, if I go with that mindset, then it becomes draining and ineffective and less meaningful. So yeah, the biggest challenges have been just confronting the difficulties of leaving comfort in, in going off the deep end and trailblazing, really. And um, I know the weeds are going to get a little bit shorter at a certain point, that, uh, that my blades are going to get sharper and it'll get simpler. But um, I'm certainly in the, the thick of it right now. Between now and the end of this year, my hope is to have something solid that will sustain me for the rest of my life and will continue to evolve. But um, yeah, I've had to learn what trust means in an entirely new way. Yeah. What are some other projects or ideas that you kind of have percolating right now? Are there other endeavors that you'd like to be able to take on and grow to be part of that portfolio of your employment? The biggest other thing is starting an actual coaching business one-on-one -on -one with what uh, people, well, people in general, of course, but musicians who have lived similar lives to me who would like to make changes and people who would like to figure out what's going on because I've been through a fair number of challenges and think that I could lend a tip or two to um, a, a number of people definitely not everyone and I would hope to find a way to intertwine that with with the workshops and apply for grants so I could eventually have a base as primarily a musician coach that can figure out how to help other people figure it out in a sense and like way 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 down the road i want to start a a retreat center which um would take place on land that my family has had for a little over 100 years now we're, we're very fortunate to have been blessed with that by an ancestor who bought it out of slavery so it's 
it's the perfect place, uh, not too far from College Station, Texas, and I just have to build enough of a career to make that happen and, you know, just make simply millions of dollars and, you know, we'll get that. <laughs> well, and you already, you know, brought up a great point and, you know, anyone taking on these endeavors need to be thinking about all of those different avenues for funding and making their ideas happen. And you, you cited being able to apply for grants and, you know, I, it seems like you're already kind of thinking about that in ways to make your uh, endeavors sustainable and also hopefully profitable in some sense for you. Yes. Right. Yeah. I would much prefer to never have to worry about money at some point in my life. It's something that we all have to figure out how to balance in our life in terms of especially the structures of this country and capitalism and, you know, but uh, money will certainly be something that will make things simple right now. <laughs> Are there any lessons that you've learned away specifically in that space in terms of being able to fund your own endeavors that you would recommend for others that are kind of taking that, that same leap and thinking about leaving some stability to pursue their own creative projects? You must be courageous enough to ask for money. <laughs> if you don't ask, you don't get every time. And uh, it took me a long time to allow myself to say, hey, I would like your help. I would love your help. I even need your help. And since I said that on social media a couple weeks ago to start the crowdfunding on GoFundMe, I've, like I said, I raised $5,500 since then. I have raised that. And I had $2,000 within the first two days. You know, so people listen, especially if you are sharing something that they feel is valuable and connects to them and their um, their sense of life. So, yeah, reframing everything is essential. You are you able to look at a list of those donors? Do you do you yes. know all of them personally? Or? Almost, actually, yeah. So making connections, starting at Eastman, was one of the most important things that I did, um, and that brings to me to one of my central focuses in life, which is to treat everything with the love and attention that we all want to see for the people we care about the most. You know, so when we do that and we're genuine about it, people will remember and, and, and take that to heart. So it's people can see it as a business venture to be a kind person, <laughs> um, which, you know, I guess you got to do what you got to do. But the ultimate goal of humanity is to connect and to, and to support each other. So we can do that in as many ways as we feel. Yeah. You cite so many important things in there, especially n very notably that people will give to people, right? Yeah. And that by, by knowing you, they're supporting you in your, your endeavor, not just the concept, right? Exactly. And, and yes, our, our world can be very small sometimes and the way we treat so, each other ooh, really so matters. Small. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Adam, it has been such a pleasure to chat with you and learn more about your story and the great work you're doing in the world. As I always ask all of our Eastman alumni, do you have any favorite memories of your time at Eastman that you'd like to share? First memory is sitting in the benches in front of the school during the first spring that I spent here. After you go through these sometimes hellish winters, <laughs> you know, uh, getting that first like moment of basking in the sunshine with all of your friends just sitting there almost refusing to go to class um that is something i'll never forget because it's it's a reminder that the, the sun is always on the other side you know even if we can't feel it um another great memory was my senior recital just because i mean it was my moment to see just how much community and connection i had built up since I had been a student and I was an RA for two years and I was a house manager for the concert office and was involved on the senior planning committee for the senior trip and whatnot. So I was, I was doing it. And to see people 
recognized that by showing up and supporting me was one of the most beautiful things that I've ever experienced. Like, I, I think I ended up packing Hatch with like almost over 100 people. It was wild. It was really wild. And um, let's see, the third memory was probably the first time I went to Dinosaur Barbecue and, and realized that barbecue can be good outside of Texas, which I almost say um, with deep sorrow because of my great pride for it. But, um, you know, you go, Dino. <laughs> <laughs> Great job. (laughs) Adam, thank you again. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much. Today's episode of Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians, was produced by Kelly Jetsum. The music was written and produced by Will J. And the artwork designed by Joyce Sang. As always, if you have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us via our website at iml.esm.rochester.edu. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on your preferred streaming platform. This podcast is a production of the Institute for Music Leadership at the Eastman School of Music. The views expressed in the podcast are the interviewees and do not represent the Eastman School of Music or the Institute for Music Leadership. From the IML, I'm Jeff Dunn. See you next time.